This is comedian Ben Frank on Tell Craig Your Story podcast. But uh, I was actually, last weekend I was at a bar with one of my gay friends, and at one point he came up to me, he was like, hey Ben, I'm going to go hook up with that guy, I'll send you the location just in case. <laughs> I'm like, just in case I want to join? <laughs> He's like, no, in case something bad happens. <laughs> I'm like, what's gonna happen? He goes, I don't know, he might try to kill me. <laughs> I'm like, then don't hook up with him. <laughs> also, if he kills people, I don't wanna be there. <laughs> that sounds scary. Like it would really suck to get murdered at my first gay orgy. <laughs> You know, like, with my 10th, who cares? I've lived a little. But the first one, I want to enjoy that. Also, if that's how I died, I'm pretty sure my family would become really homophobic. Not because they're mean, but just to support my memory. Because all the LGBT activists would be like, what's wrong with two men loving each other? My mom would be like, gay sex killed my son! Like, that's a really good point. <laughs> but you guys are a fun crowd. Uh, a lot of people sometimes get offended by jokes, uh, which can be frustrating, but I realize I'm also the problem. Sometimes I get offended even when people mean well. Uh, like recently this guy found out that I was Jewish and he went, oh, I saw Schindler's List. <laughs> And it was the saddest movie I've ever seen. I was like, hold on a second. Your saddest ever movie is a film that ends with a bunch of Jews getting saved? How are you watching that? You're just seeing the credits roll like, oh no, the Goldbergs got away. This isn't what I came for. So immediately he kind of backs off. He's like, I get it, very serious, six million. I'm like, uh, I'm a person, not a statistic. <laughs> Respect my intergenerational trauma. Then <laughs> he goes, you know I'm part black, right? I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> and then I was like, 12 years a slave is the saddest movie. <laughs> I've ever seen in my entire life. Anyways, you guys have been fun. Thank you very much. I'm Ben Frank. Have a great night.
Hi guys, Craig here. Welcome to another edition of the podcast, Tell Craig Your Story. Today we'll be speaking to comedian Ben Frank. Now Ben is born in the USA, in Massachusetts. He did his degree in the US and then decided to start working uh, overseas with an international company. He then moved to Shanghai, China, where he started doing open mic and comedian shows. As Ben uh, developed his show, Ben became one of the best comedians in Shanghai and did numerous tours around China. To this date, he has performed in 10 different Asian countries around the world. After the restrictions were released in Wuhan, Ben was the first person to do a stand-up comedy show, and that show is also available uh, to be streamed online. A couple of months ago, uh, Ben Frank did his farewell shows, and that was some of the best shows that I, I have seen a comedian do in Shanghai. Uh, there were some amazing performances. He was very, very funny. He made the decision to move back to the to New York, you know, and to make a career being a comedian. But before we go, please go to our website. We are at Podbean. Tell Craig your story at podbean.com. We have a link tree there. That'll tell you exactly where Tell Craig Your Story podcast is streaming. We are on all the major streaming services, Google Podcast, Apple iTunes, Spotify, to name a few. We also have a YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribing to get all the latest updates. We want to make sure that that is ticking over. And uh, make sure you're telling your friends about Tell Craig Your Story and get them to share the, the link. We also have VK for our Russian listeners and WeChat for our Chinese listeners. At Till Craig, your story. All right, here we go. This is part two of my chat with Ben Frank on Till Craig, your story podcast. So, what year was that? Did you say so that when was, you moved back to Shanghai? Yeah, so that was the job I mentioned before. That was the real estate developer the one that yeah. was the subsidiary of the Chinese company. But as I mentioned to you, that also didn't last very long and left me unemployed pretty quickly. But at least there, I was already in China, and I felt like I belonged in China, and I wanted to keep working in China. So I was like, well, I'm on the ground here. Looking for jobs while I'm on the ground here will be easier than looking for them from abroad. So I kind of stuck it out, and then that was when I found the NBA thing, and then soon after that, I started All doing right. stand-up. So, so things... Things eventually fell into place, but it took it yeah. took a little bit. And your first uh, impressions of Shanghai, and was it easy to sort of adapt to the city? Yeah, I don't I don't think it was that it was that difficult to adapt because I mean at that point because of my experience living you know studying abroad in Beijing I you know I already spoke pretty decent Chinese at that point it would I would think get better over over the years but I I already spoke a decent amount of Chinese and that, you know so that was helpful. Um, and then at that point, and even still, I would say, um, Shanghai is the type of city where it's very easy to meet people and make friends. So you're able to integrate pretty quickly. And again, 2014, you know, when I first moved there, you know, was more of a time where things were kind of, you know, a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more wild and kind of freewheeling and, you know, you know, you could kind of, you know, there are a lot of places at that point that, that existed that don't exist now, you know, where people went out. I mean, all, you know, all the major places I would go to at that, you know, at that point, you know, were, you know, probably no longer open. <laughs> what, do they, what do they say? What a couple of people have said to me, it's what it used to be called the Wild West here in Shanghai. Yeah. Where it was like a uh, lot more free for all, but now it's 
still very good, but, you know, yeah, it's changed a lot. Yeah, for sure. Tell us about this uh, MBA. How, how did you get involved in that? And, uh, you know, it's kind of like a lucky that, you, you know, you're into your sports as well. So tell, tell us a bit about this. Yeah, so that was kind of a fortunate circumstance of what happened there. So after that real estate developer in Shanghai went under, I was looking for a job for a few months and I was, I I got a job offer to work in the research department for uh, Jones Lang LaSalle or JLL, one of the big real estate agencies, uh, one of the big commercial agencies. Um, and I was about to start working for them. And this was probably like maybe April of 2015. And like five days before I was about to start this job, I got an email from a guy who I'd maybe met once in person, like two or three years before. This guy who basically he's a headhunter, but he specialized in placing bilingual foreigners in China in, you know, kind of different positions. That was kind of his mm. little little niche there. Like, you know, right. if you're a bilingual foreigner in China, kind of I have these opportunities that I'm going to hook you up with. And I don't know what it was from the time, from when we met or what he'd been looking at on my LinkedIn or whatever. I remember if he remembered that I was a sports guy, he basically sent me an email and he's like, I don't think he even knew that I was looking for a job at that point in time. Right. He just sent me an email saying, Hey, um, I have this opportunity and you're the first person I thought of. And again, wow. I, met this, I met this guy once, like two or three years before. This is not someone who I speak with on a regular basis. So this email just dropped out of the sky. This isn't someone who I would normally be expecting to hear from. So but I'm thinking to myself, I'm about to start a new job in five days. Should I even take this call? So then yeah. I so then I, I, I called him. We had a conversation. And he's like, this job is with the NBA. And then I was like, mm-hmm. well, you know, fuck. Now I have to <laughs> at least see what this is. Yeah. Um, and then he starts to say, explain to me, like, kind of it's this job um, where, you know, the NBA is looking to develop this concept for kind of NBA branded children's play zones in China. And they're looking to expand or open these and they need they preferably want someone with a real estate background who can go, you know, and talk to different developers and shopping malls, try to figure out spaces that they can open up in. Um, so the fact that I had a little bit of a real estate background um, yeah. was an asset. And then, you know, into the sports and all that. But then I told this guy, I'm like, hey, I'm supposed to start this other job in like five days. What am I supposed to do here? I was like, how quickly can you get me through this interview process to see if I can take this job? You know, or if it's if they want if they even want me. Um, yeah. And he goes, uh, I can get you through the interview process in two weeks. So what I did was I, I called the, you know, the, you know, JLL or, you know, sent them a message and I said, Hey, made up some excuse. I said, Hey, can you delay my start date by two weeks? Um, you know, I, I think I said, like, Oh, I want to go visit family before I start a job or just something. Um, lay it by two weeks. So within the next two weeks or whatever, um, this guy managed to cram like three rounds of interviews. And so I interviewed with the guy who would be my kind of future boss. Um, we, you know, kind of met at, uh, we met at an element fresh for lunch. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we, we had, we had an interview there. Then I had an interview with HR that was a hundred percent in Chinese. 
and then uh, then I had an interview with basically the guy who was the number two um, at the company at the time uh, at NBA China. Uh, so that interview was like basically half in English, half in Chinese. He was kind of he was a Chinese guy, but who had gotten like an MBA in the U.S. Um, but we kind of went back and forth in that interview. Um, and eventually, after those three interviews, you know, they they offered me they offered me the job, and I ended up taking it. Like basically, I confirmed like the Friday before the Monday where I was supposed to start at the other job. And then once Monday came along, I just didn't show up to JLL for what was uh-huh. supposed to be my day. Um, <laughs> so pretty, pretty annoying, kind of, were they? Or they just sort of did just? I'm sure they were. The funny thing about the JLL thing is, I had a backstory with that position that came even before. So I was going to be this was I was going to be working in their research department in Shanghai. I had actually applied for what was probably almost the same position or a very similar position at JLL like a year before when I was in New York. And their head of research for Asia, JLL's head of research for Asia, just happened to be in New York at the time. So after I'd interviewed with his kind of underling, he was like, oh, I'll interview this guy. I'm in New York. We interviewed in person. Um, We had an interview uh, again, talking about interviews in crazy places, uh, he interviewed me at the Carnegie Deli <laughs> in New York. So um, uh-huh. th- this is the irony. The, the Carnegie Deli is closed now. This is the one time I ever went to the Carnegie Deli, but I couldn't eat anything <laughs> because I was being interviewed. Uh, <laughs> so this was this ended up being this ended up being probably the worst interview of my entire life. Um, <laughs> Because it was for a real estate research position, but the questions he was asking, it was more of like a consulting type interview where they give you like kind of cases and problems to solve, which is fine. But usually when you're getting ready to do like case interviews, you're like you study for those, you prepare for those for months, you're kind of in the mindset of it. And if you haven't been preparing for that sort of interview, you're just not sharp for it. And You're not prepared for it. And I really, I think, I think I bombed that interview (laughs) more than anything. That was terrible. I didn't get the job. But then a year later, when I'm applying, applying for a similar position or the same position, that guy, the one who had interviewed me at the Carnegie Deli, he had moved on to another company. I think he was now like the head of research at like BlackRock, like, you know, like another, you know, like a, you know, another, you know, another financial firm. And so his underling was now like the top guy in the interview process. And since that guy had liked me, um, he, you know, kind of pushed me through, gave me the job offer. But then I got revenge on them by backing out at the last minute. So we both screwed each other over in like this yeah, position right. twice within the span of a year. They rejected me and then I rejected them. Goes around, comes around, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, a bit of karma, I guess. <laughs> So tell us about where does this fit into your uh, comedy and your stand-up and your improvisation? Like, when did this all start? Was this around the same time, or you sort of getting your feelers out for you know doing shows? So as I said before, I, I had never really thought about doing stand-up. It wasn't something that was ever in my plans. Um, yeah. What happened was soon after I joined the NBA, so that was in July of 2015. Uh, a little bit after that, 
they the NBA had this like biannual event where they like uh all the departments get together and they do like a, a presentation for like what you know what they're gonna do over the next fiscal year. So it's kind of like a full company event uh where everyone gets together. But you know it's a it's a it's a pretty dry um day in terms of like you know because it's a lot of departments showing powerpoints. So they wanted to break up the event by having like a a company like a talent show. Uh, and they were desperate to get people for this talent show. And I, I think I agreed to be on the talent show before I even thought of what I was going to do. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, Oh, what, like, what am I going to do? This is going to be Put dumb. <laughs> I got no, nothing here. And at some point, one of my colleagues was like, Oh, can you do impressions? Like, I was like, actually, I think I can. So, I did like a, a set of just some impressions that I knew and, you know, I wrote a set, did some impressions. Um, it went fairly well for someone who'd never performed before. The people who knew <laughs> what I was doing enjoyed it. Some people who didn't get the references were very confused. Um, <laughs> but it was clear there was something there and it went all right enough. And in front of, so my first time ever performing was in front of like 150 colleagues um, so, but this went well enough where I started to think like, oh, I'll look up open mics in Shanghai, or if I travel to Beijing for work, I'll look up open mics there. And so for then I just started doing open mics and kind of the rest is history. I went from doing open mics to eventually getting booked on weekend showcases. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you know, I start to travel a little bit, maybe do some competitions in, you know, different cities and, then I get booked, you start getting booked to, you know, tour and headline in different places. Then I'm, you know, I'm headlining around China, then eventually headlining around Asia. Um, it just kind of grew from there. Yeah. Cause it says here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 10 different countries you've been to, uh, doing your, your, your stand up. Yeah. Yeah. Headlined clubs in, yeah. Yeah. While I was in Asia, I headlined clubs in 10 different countries. And and also all around all around not just Shanghai. I mean, I saw some of your, your dates that you performed like the last couple of years, and you've been all over all over China. I mean, you could probably make a living out of it with the amount of sort of shows you could do, right? Or is it just still something that? No, there's just really in, in now. If we're just strictly talking about English comedy here in China, uh, Chinese comedy is a whole other ball. Yes. Um, right. There's a lot more money in that just because obviously the market size is a lot bigger. There's not the money to make a living off of it. Even a lot of these headline shows, you might be lucky if you break even on the trip or you might make a little bit of money. But it, it, there's not enough money to live off of, even if you're even if you're a headliner that's touring around China or even around Asia as well. Yeah. Um, really, the only if you're doing English comedy. The only real way that you could in Asia that you could make conceivably really make a living is if you're living in a place that is English speaking, uh, like yeah. a Hong Kong or a Hong Singapore Kong. or a Malaysia mm-hmm. where, um, you could potentially get into the scene where you can get private or corporate gigs. And then though, cause those are what really pay. So if you can get into that scene, like I know, you know, some comedians in Hong Kong who, you know, have worked their way up over the years and are well connected and do a bunch of different events like that. 
And those people can can make a living kind of off, you know, or make close to a living off of those events. Um, right. But if you're not living in an English speaking place and you're just relying on these kind of tour dates, uh, that just doesn't pay well enough to live off of. And it's not even close. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I I moved here in 2000, the start of 2019, Shanghai. And I, like we said um, off off camera that. You know, I saw you at the cages. Um, I saw you with the Kung Fu. I saw you do your improvisation show just before you left. Even before that, it was like you were just like plastered everywhere. Like, like, like you just can you remember the first show that you actually uh, like besides like the um, the one that you did for your work? Can you remember like your first paid sort of show? And what was that hmm. like? Huh, I'm not even sure I remember what the first paid show would be because I mean I so I was doing a lot of open mics at that point right. after and it was probably a few months maybe um you know maybe like so, four months after I started doing open mics before I was getting booked on the weekend shows and then you know once probably yeah the first weekend showcase I did you know the first booked show I think was uh hmm. probably middle of January like I think it was January twenty sixteen and that would have been right. the first like kind of weekend showcase gig um, that, you know, I would have, quote, gotten paid for. Yeah. What was that experience like? And, you know, as you went along, like, uh, were the Chinese people were sort of uh, understanding the jokes? Like, like, or was it, again, mainly just the, like the foreign, the foreign people that were here? So, I mean, at that point in time, we're talking, it's like 2016. So we especially because I was at Kung Fu Comedy at that point in time. Mm. And Kung Fu Comedy had really built up a following, uh, you know, amongst both the expat community and some of the local community as well. So those shows were kind of a nice mix of, uh, at least most of them, we had a nice mix of a lot of expats, but also um, some Chinese as well. So it was people, you know, people from all over. So that, so the sensibilities were very, were very mixed. So, I think at that point in time, kind of people were just transitioning to, because we were getting, we were building up the scene and I think comedy had been around long enough where, you know, kind of people were starting to move on a little bit from, okay, for a few years we've done like a lot of just the basic China jokes. And, yes. and now I think it was, it was at that point where we're starting to get a little bit more sophisticated because we, for a couple of years, we'd already been bringing out comedians from the States so a lot of folks in Shanghai were regularly seeing comedians from New York or L.A. Yeah. So I think kind of seeing what a more international or Western form of comedy looked like, you know, what it looked like when a pro comes here, a real pro uh, comes here uh, and does a show. So then, I, But I think that helped um, all of us as well as comedians because then we were able to see those people and that kind of inspired us to do even better. But you see those people do but when those kind of people come to Shanghai and the local audience sees them, it kind of um, it adjusts their tastes a little bit. And then 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 they become more open to different types of humor or kind of different types of, um, you know, just different types of jokes about different subjects that might not necessarily be related to China or related to living in Shanghai or or things like that. So I think having those international shows was really instrumental in kind of uh, bringing a more 
international attitude in there and kind of having that sort of sensibility for the crowd. But that also evolved over the years because um, I would say kind of once 2017, it was maybe 2017 or a little after, I would say a lot of foreigners gradually left. So I think our shows became more and more, audiences became more and more Chinese over time, especially once COVID hit and all the foreigners that left because of COVID couldn't get back into the country because of COVID, the audiences became more local. And then at that point, you know, you kind of have to adjust a little bit, but you still want to be, you know, developing the act that you want to develop, especially for me, because I was looking to go back to the U.S. at some point. I wanted to have yes. an act that could translate back in the U.S. and wasn't just a bunch of a bunch of China jokes that, that yes. would work once I left. Yeah. And did you have any sort of issues uh, during this whole period in Shanghai with censorship? Like, you know, obviously you go to a comedy show, there's going to be some F-bombs coming up and, you know, some sort of sexual jokes. So did you have any sort of trouble with the sort of censorship here? So, I mean, from from that perspective, especially in the early years that I did comedy, there was really no issue in terms of any subject matter you discussed on stage, you know, besides the Chinese government. So as long as you stayed away from that, you were fine. And, and the scene really self-policed on that front um, because we all knew the stakes. So if yes. we caught people talking about it, we'd be like, you know, Hey, cut that out. Or like, you know, we're yeah. gonna cut your, we're not going to let you back on the show if you keep doing that. So people were pretty serious about that as time progressed and the profile of standup became higher in China and especially as Kung Fu comedy got bigger, I think, you know, that ultimately may have been its undoing and why it got shut down when it did, because it would, I think maybe the, the social media following got so big that mm. the culture bureau thought that, you know, this is something that's growing, that either has grown or has the potential to grow to something that's beyond our control. Um, isn't, that, isn't, that, isn't that such a shame? Because the, you just, you, you, Absolutely spot on with how it was just getting bigger and bigger just each time, you know, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, obviously I can't, I can't get inside the heads of the people in the bureau and what they were actually yes, thinking, but, but just based on kind of how, how it grew and where the club was going and the kind of the trajectory it was on, that to me seems to be what happened. And what probably yes. happened because, you know, because, you know, when these things happen, things get shut down and there's no reason ever given. They don't have to give a reason. So they don't. Um, but that fundamentally kind of changed things for a while. And it kind of changed where a lot of people performed, who they performed for. Um, but it also kind of made people a little more aware that, oh, you know, we've been able to perform for a lot of years here under the radar, we're definitely not under the radar anymore. And it doesn't mean we can't keep, you know, still performing, but, you know, technically in China for a, for a stand-up show to be 100% legal, it needs to be, you need to submit a script and a video to the Culture Bureau uh, for mm -hmm. vetting. And now mm -hmm. when we started doing comedy, you know, for small rooms like a 50 and 100 people, no one cared. You didn't need to do that for the, for those sort of shows. But say if you were booking a theater show or an arena show, like a, like if Russell Peters came and did Mercedes Benz Arena, yeah. that before you even rent out Mercedes Benz Arena, 
or will they will before they let you rent it out, they will require you to show proof of approval from the culture bureau before they will even let you rent out that space. So if you do an arena or even a theater show, you know, that's more than a few hundred people that that will require you to go through the bureau. But since most of the shows we were doing were club shows that were no more than a hundred people, um, no one really cared and we were able to do whatever we wanted for a long time. Um, then when that scrutiny got, uh, got higher, they started to, you know, even look at the smaller shows and we needed to kind of be more careful or stay under the radar or not advertise as much or be careful with what venues we worked with, uh, you know, whether they had the right guan to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, keep the authorities at bay. And then eventually uh, where I think things are now and where they kind of fell once COVID happened is that when we came back after COVID, uh, we were just kind of like, hey, we're not going to charge for any of our shows. They're all going to be mm-hmm. free. Because uh, the big issue that they hide behind, even if in the end it's probably a censorship issue because they can't control what you're saying when you're doing an extemporaneous performance on stage. But the well, the reason that's given for why these commercialized shows can't happen is that uh, if you're doing a commercial show and it doesn't go through the bureau, it's not being taxed. So they're losing out mm-hmm. on that tax revenue. Um but if you're doing the show for free and you're not advertising it on all these platforms, what you can do is you can say, oh, well, this is a private party. Um, yes. This is a free private party for our friends. And so that's kind of how we position comedy and kind of how it's running mostly to this day is that it's these free okay. gatherings that are like private parties for a closed community that we market to or that they're marketing to now since I'm no longer living there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it says that you're also a part of the People's Republic of Comedy, uh the Shanghai Improv, and I saw them last week and they was they were amazing. They still make me laugh. <laughs> uh crazy boys, but uh tell us your experience with that and then what is your preference? Do you like sort of mixing it up? Is that the reason why you like doing improv or, you know, tell tell us tell us about that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I I know the people, the people who are currently in PRC. I know them well, but I actually I never performed with them while they were in in PRC because I was uh, I was in it many years ago, probably like right. 2016, 2017, um, mm-hmm. and I got into it, you know, as a way to just get more stage time performing, and I thought that it would I thought that it would kind of help me with my crowd work and riffing when I went and did stand up you know, just to have experience improvising on stage. And I, I enjoyed it and I ended up doing it. I was probably with PRC for about a year, but I ended up quitting partially because at that time I was going to be going to Beijing a lot for work. So I wasn't going to be able to do their rehearsals and shows. So I kind of had to step away from the group for a little while just because I wasn't going to be there. Um, But then on top of that, Stand up was getting busier for me and I felt like I kind of needed to make a choice that, you know, cause improv was taking up, you know, we had one show a week and then we usually had one rehearsal a week. So that's, that's taken up two nights, which is, yeah. which, which is fine. But if you're also performing stand up almost every night of the week and then yeah. improv also takes up two nights, it's a lot. Uh, and I was stretching myself thin and I thought to myself, like, what's more important to me or what do I really want to do? 
And yeah. for me, I thought if, I, if I'm going to have a future in comedy, it's probably going to be in stand up. And I want to focus my attention on stand up. Um, yes. So that was kind of why I stopped doing it. And it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. Um, it's just like they're the stakes do feel a bit lower in improv. Sometimes they're higher in the sense that you have a group of people that you have to work with and that you, yes. you don't want to let down. But at the same time, the stakes are lower because you have people you can lean on and you're not totally reliant on yourself to keep the show afloat. Yes. Whereas with stand up, you go on stage and it's all you. So yeah. No one helping you. <laughs> Yeah, it's a hundred percent on you. So when stand up, so kind of for for me, what I found that with improv compared to stand up, regardless of how the show goes, it's a bigger rush with stand up, at least for me, because you feel the bombs more because the bomb is all on you. But if it goes well and you kill, you also feel that more because it's all you. You're not sharing it with anybody. Whereas I, I found that I was pretty even keeled with with improv shows. If they went well, yeah, it feels good. You, you did a good show with a bunch of people. But if it goes badly, the bad feeling is also distributed amongst a lot of different people. Yes. So yeah. it, it, it doesn't feel as bad when it goes bad, at least for me. And it didn't feel quite as good when it went well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of that, how do you sort of write – I mean, you're saying like you're always trying to uh, write new material, but is it easy for you to write? Does it come very naturally or do you have to sort of work on it, you know, like take some time off to sort of write new material? So I think for me, like if it comes to like a brand new joke, mm. those that's usually for me just kind of like an idea that pops into my head based on something that's going on, and then I'll sit down and I'll be like, okay, let's write this idea into a joke. I just thought of this new idea. Um, but if it's a joke that I've already worked on a couple times, or more than that, like if it's a joke that I already went through that phase of I thought of the idea and I've tried it on stage, for me, for at least those jokes, I need to actually sit down and say, okay, hey, uh, I need to rework this joke. I've tried it a few times on stage it's not working as well as I want. Let's sit down and try to rewrite this joke and make it funnier. So yeah, that process of the iterative process is kind of a more conscious thing where I feel like I need to sit down and actually work on it uh, to make it a better joke. Whereas kind of the initial process is usually like a fit of inspiration where an idea comes and you just get, and I get it down, you know, you know, before I would try it on stage for the first time. Right. Absolutely. And getting like towards the end of when you left Shanghai, I saw you perform at the real, real Shanghai. You, oh, yeah, you had like a bit of, bit, a bit of like a, a, a farewell, but, uh, you did a performance. One of the first performers after the COVID, uh, actually to perform in Wuhan. Is this correct? And tell us about, uh, you did like a live, you recorded like a live show, right? Yeah. So. So, yeah, as most people know, like the, yeah, the Wuhan, you know, Wuhan was locked down, uh, from the end of January 2020 to beginning of April 2020. It was a 76 day mm. lockdown, uh, you know, where no one could come into or out of the city. Uh, and I was, after that lockdown ended, uh, I was the first 
person to headline a comedy show in Wuhan. Um, mm. So I had been nice. after. Yeah, it was kind of thrilling as they after their lockdown happened, I had been talking to the people who were kind of responsible for booking shows there. And I'd heard that they might be interested in doing shows there soon again. And I just kind of thought to myself, I'm like, oh, I should jump on this. Like, I want to be the first person. I want to be the first Mm. person. to go. No one's booked it yet. I want to be the first person. If I go there, I'll film it. I'll try to do something with it. Yeah. Um, So I ended up booking the date. Uh, I think I did July 10th. So it was basically exactly three months after the lockdown had ended. And yeah, I did, did the show there, hired a little camera crew. Uh, we recorded it. And then, uh, you know, I got some help, a lot of help editing from a friend. And then, yeah. you know, I posted it on YouTube as kind of a short, a short special, um, just kind of, you know, re- remembering this, you know, this, this moment of time, this, this trip to Wuhan, um, to do this, to do this show. Yeah, and I saw like a little bit of online. Did you get a good vibe of that show from from the fans? You know, it's interesting. It was pretty. It was pretty up and down. Um, you really? know, certainly. Yeah, it, you know, I don't know if that how it comes through on the video. I mean, I, I think I had to. You know, in all honesty, I think I had to do. You know, it's maybe just me being you know overly overly critical. Uh, but I felt like I had to do a lot of editing. Um, with that to come out with a product that I felt good posting about posting on stage. Right. Cause the issue with that is that normally when you want to film something and you do a special, you take multiple cracks at it. You have multiple recordings, multiple yes. taping. Um, but with the way Wuhan is that there's, there's not enough of a market. There's not enough people to come to shows to do multiple tapings. So right. you really only have one shot. So I kind of just had the one show I had and you know, the camera angles that I got for that one show. And I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was up and down. I mean, the, the you know, cause it, it's nobody's fault, but by nature of it being in Wuhan and the fact that Wuhan was locked down for so long. Yeah, that's but, true as well. Yeah. But also the fact that, you know, Wuhan has a very irregular comedy scene. So it doesn't have like the people there haven't gotten a lot of stage time, haven't gotten a lot of practice. So it was kind of a rough show at the beginning, like before, I actually think that before I went on stage, they're probably like, it was a host and maybe three or four other openers before me that all did like very short sets. I don't know if I heard a single laugh before I went on stage. Wow. Like the whole show. Um, okay. So that was kind of what I was going into. And I'm, I'm standing there thinking like, oh man, I hired a camera crew for this. This is going to be a first. <laughs> Yeah. Like what, you know, so it, that's why if you watch the beginning of that set, I, I went on stage with way more energy than I would normally go on stage with. Not, not that I wouldn't be energetic, but just to try to force something, just to try to change something in the room, and, you know, do a little bit of crowd work, get people, get people amped up. And just trying to really bring it as much as I possibly could. Um, but it was, I'm not going to lie, a lot of that show uh, felt like a slog. Uh, it was a real test of will. Not that it wasn't a good show, but when you're, when you're looking to record something, you're, you're so nervous about how the show's going to go. You, you're like, everything needs to be perfect 
that you get really upset and discouraged if things aren't going well or if you think they're not going well. Uh, so you really just have to push through. And I just forced myself to stick with it even when, even when the show was long enough where I probably could have cut it short and gotten off stage because I wasn't feeling like I was doing that great. I was like, just keep going. I was like, you're filming something. You need to get as much footage as possible. That yeah. way, flexible with what you use. So I, I pushed myself to go as long as I could, get through all the material I wanted and all that stuff. So, you know, what I ended up posting was really a pretty, you know, small percentage of what the whole set ended up being. But it was, yeah, so it was, it was not, it was not an easy show. I wouldn't say, but I, I think, I think we cobbled together enough stuff to make it a decent, um, you know, a decent video online. Maybe it was a little bit too early for the jokes and the laughter of what had happened. And, uh, but I thought it would have been the opposite. Like they'd want to get out and they'd want to see live performances and, you know, be entertained. I don't know if it's necessarily that they weren't ready or that they weren't ready to enjoy themselves, but it's also, um, you know, performing in Wuhan, it's a strange mix of people as well. Mm. You know, you have local Chinese, but you, but, but honestly, the, you know, the type of expats that are in Wuhan, you know, they, they're, they're, you know, they, they, they can be interesting people. They're not, <laughs> you know, most, most people don't want to spend that much time in Wuhan, even before that's right. it was, that's right. you know, it was, uh, that's what I tell people even here is that Wuhan was a city that people made fun of in China long before the pandemic <laughs> happened. <laughs> that, that's just put the, you know, Terry on yeah. the top. Um, so, um, very interesting. Yeah. But I'm so glad I did it and that I have yeah, that. Absolutely. And that, and that I, you know, put in the work to, to do that. Not many people can say they did that, but, uh, yeah, well done. One of the first to do that. So we get towards like the, the farewell, like your last couple of shows. Uh, just tell us how, how they were. Uh, like I said, I saw the real Shanghai. Uh, one of your last shows that you did before Shanghai. Was it a good farewell, good good sending? Did you get like a good vibe with those shows? Yeah, I mean, that was great. I mean, that whole weekend I got to do a bunch of long sets, um, including two shows on Saturday, one on Sunday. Um, the, and those, yeah, those crowds are really good, especially um, we recorded all of them, especially the late show on Saturday. Um it might have been like the best show I've ever done in my life. Uh, yeah, right. It just it was that perfect mix of I think it was, it, you know, it was a farewell show, so it was a crowd that was excited to see me. But I think there were also a decent amount of people in that crowd that maybe hadn't seen me before, or hadn't seen me in a really long time. But then also people who did know my act and were excited to see me for one last time. So I think that combination, and also the fact that it was the it was the late show, so you know people are better lubricated. Uh, you know, with, with alcohol and everything. Um, it was just a hot show from the get go and I just kept the momentum going and I ended up performing for close to 80 minutes because the audience just, they were good and I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to keep going with them and they were giving me like, you know, a lot of rolling laughter. The riffing was great. Um, so I mean, I got that, you know, I got a video of that, but I also have it on audio and uh, I'm trying to figure out what to do with it whether I'm going to release that as an audio album because uh, mm. it does sound, it has a good sound because there's just a lot of laughter throughout. 
Um, so I'm trying to figure out whether I would, you know, produce it myself or I'm, you know, I'm currently talking to one of the major comedy record labels here to see if maybe there's something we can do. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's going to happen, but, um, kind of in, in discussions to try to figure out what to do with it because it, it's, it's cool for me because it, it really captures that, that moment in time, you know, right before I moved, uh, here. Wow. So it's, it's really just captures what my act was like, uh, at that very moment. So I would like to kind of release something that shows, uh, you know, that is that snapshot of, of yeah. where my was at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And make sure you let us know. We'll promote it for you then. Not a problem. Uh, what would you say to someone that's sort of wanting to do comedy? I'm not sure whether they should do it. They've got a nine to five job. They don't want to sort of, uh, what would you say? What advice would you give to some, uh, a young, a young kid sort of wanting to do this? Uh, I would say try it as quickly as possible. And by try, mm-hmm. I mean, go on, go on stage, find a way to go on stage. Um, yeah. Because either one or two things will happen and it might not happen the first time you go on stage, but either you'll think after a few times of doing it, you're like, ah, I don't like this or this isn't for me or whatever. And then you just won't do it anymore, but you'll know, you'll know because you tried it or you'll discover it and be like, wow, I need to keep doing this. Yeah. And I got to keep doing it now. Um, you know, the, the biggest regret you hear from most, a lot of comics is that they didn't start earlier or that they had wanted to do it for a number of years, but they never had the guts. Um, mm-hmm. They were nervous and they thought about doing it. And they're like, they wrote all these jokes and they're like, Oh, I'll get on stage one day. And they just keep psyching themselves out of it. And then, you know, it, it's years and years before they get themselves on stage. Then they figure out that they love it and that they're passionate about it. And they're like, Oh man, if I had just gotten myself on stage earlier, um, so I think the most important thing is to not build up the idea of going on stage like, oh, it's this major thing. I have to prepare for it. My jokes need to be better. Um, it's really best, even if you don't think your jokes are good enough yet, to go on stage as quickly as you can. Because the truth is you, you're you're brand new. So what you go on stage with, the chances are it's not going to be, it, it, since you're performing for the first time, it's not going to be brilliant or that great anyway you might have some good stuff but yeah. the only way you know it's could it's good or that you could make it better is if you test it in front of a real audience the as a stand-up the you know what you write on the page is the basis for what you try on stage but the end result or you know the jokes that you end up seeing in comedy specials those are the results of what the comedian has written, but then also the feedback the audience has given over the dozens or hundreds of times that they've done that joke. So the joke can only get better or you can only get better if you actually go on stage. So that would be my big thing is don't, don't build it up over a long period of time and keep, don't keep putting off going on stage because you're never going to get any better unless (laughs) age and, and keep trying to perform. Or you're never going to discover whether it's something you like or not. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. What does the future hold for Ben Frank? Well, I mean, now it's just trying, uh, you know, trying to make my way in the scene here in New York and just get on stage as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Because as I said here, when you when you move from other places, 
you know, there's so many great comics in New York that when you move here, even if you have a decent resume of what you've done, um, mm. unless you're somebody like famous, no one's really impressed. Uh, yes. I, I, you know, I reached out to like a bunch of people before I moved here and was able to get some gigs um, off of kind of what my bio was and sending my tape to people. Um, but that was really just kind of a numbers thing. If you, if you, if you, if you reach out to enough people, some of them will respond and some of them will give you opportunities. But in New York, really the key is you just have to build up relationships with people. Um, no matter how good you are or how good you think you are or what your experience is, you don't really get booked unless people know you and feel comfortable with you and they see you around or you, you build a relationship with them or also, if you can give them anything in return, it's it's not really as simple as uh, obviously, I think the best people in New York eventually kind of rise to the top. But a lot of getting booked on shows here is bigger. It's kind of, you know, sometimes it's like a you scratch my back. I'll scratch your back. Yes. Yes. Type of type of thing. So you kind of need to be able to provide something of value to them, whether it's being able to book them on a, on a show or being able to get them, you know, give them some connection somewhere else or um, whether you help them sell tickets for their show, um, whether you help them kind of uh, run the show with them, whatever it's, uh, that's the big thing when you move to New York compared to somewhere like Shanghai, Shanghai, we don't have that many comedians and we actually have a good amount of stage time for the amount of comedians we have. So you can just kind of get on stage for the most part, whenever you want in bigger cities or more competitive cities like New York, the stage time doesn't come for free. Um, right. You kind of have to earn your right to get on stage. So that's kind of really the difference here. And that's kind of where I am with, the, with establishing myself and just getting to the point where I can perform regularly, get in front of audiences and just kind of start to build my name here in the scene. Absolutely. Is there going to be any dates in Australia in the future? Wink, wink. I mean, I hope. I hope to once the you know the world settles down a little bit. I I hope yeah. I'm a, able to go to Australia, whether it's to you know tour and do some club gigs there, or whether you know, or whether uh, you know at some point it makes sense for me to do the Melbourne Festival. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's obviously one of the biggest one of the biggest festivals in the world. That would, uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly hope to because I've, I've never, uh, I've never, never been to Australia, uh, and I, I would, I would love to go, and especially to do stand up there would be, would, would be, would be really, really cool. Yeah, and I think your, I think your sort of um, your comedy and, and your jokes would really fit into our sort of style of personalities down in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I certainly, uh, yeah, certainly, certainly hope so. Um, it would be 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 great yeah and uh you know love of all the uh, you know people back home for you in australia they could uh you know follow me on uh on on instagram at a uh, ben frank comedy absolutely um, tell us tell us some of your social medias mate yeah so twitter and instagram are both uh ben frank comedy um i got a youtube channel as well that's uh i guess that's ben frank that's Probably the easiest way to find me for on YouTube for people from Australia. If you search Ben Frank live in Wuhan mm-hmm. on YouTube, you'll find my video from Wuhan, and then that's on my channel. So then you could see the subscription link there. So if you search Ben Frank live in Wuhan, that's probably the easiest way to find my my YouTube channel. But yeah, the Twitter and Instagram are both 
uh, Ben Frank comedy. Yeah, it's just a, yeah. And then I guess you can, uh, there's also a Ben Frank comedy Facebook page, stand up clips on my Instagram that you could check. You know, it's a backlog. I also did a bunch of impression videos if you like yeah. that sort of thing. Get on, get on your YouTube and, and watch some of the in impersonations. Uh, yeah, they're really, really yeah. cool. Yeah, so if you've awesome. never seen my social media before, there's a backlog of stuff you can check out before I post some uh, some newer things. But I do hope to, as I said, I got some really good video and audio from those farewell shows. So I'm hoping yes. that I either gradually post clips on YouTube and or eventually release an album uh, off of that. Right, absolutely. All right, uh, and to finish off, I'd like to do some like just quick questions, and I want you to give me like your two or three uh, favorite things uh, as of today. Are you ready, Ben? It's not okay. going to go for very long. Can I get your two or three uh, favorite uh, musical uh, bands or artists? I, you know, I, I not that a lot of people don't. I still regularly listen to like a lot of grunge and stuff. So I'll, you know, I'll listen to like Nirvana and Soundgarden. Um, yeah. you know, a lot, and I'll also listen to like some of the very poppy stuff, you know, from the eighties, whether it's like Duran Duran or like, you know, right. the, the, the cars or, 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 you know, or, or, you know, or things like that, or, or Cindy Lauper or, or, you know, Whitney Houston. So I'm still, uh, you know, I'm still listening to a lot of that stuff as well. It's- Tell us your, uh, three, top three or f- two or three favorite, uh, comedians. Well, yeah, this is a, yeah, another tough question. I mean, obviously, I think Louis C.K. is amazing. Um, yes. He probably is near near the top for me, just in terms of people I've seen work and just consistently what he what he puts out. Um, after him, it, I think it really it depends on the taste and like kind of what I'm into at the time. Uh, I really like um, a guy like Anthony Jeselnik. Um, just in terms of pure joke writer, you know, it kind of has this, you know, persona to him that's kind of, it has very, kind of a very dark one-liner sort of guy. Um, yeah. but the, the joke writing is just impeccable. Um, and he's really honed his persona. He's a really strong comic. He's fantastic. Besides that, recently there's this, uh, last few years, there's this, uh, woman named Beth Stelling. Um, who's really funny, who had like a, a half hour on Netflix. I think she also maybe had an HBO thing as well. And she's been on like different various late night shows. Um, but yeah, her half hour that she did on Netflix maybe three or so years ago, uh, was one of, one of the best half hours I've, um, I've ever seen. She's just really funny comic from, uh, from Chicago. So those would be some of my, I mean, there, there are a million great ones also that I enjoy. Someone like Mark Normand or Sam Morrill. Absolutely. Uh, tell us your two or three uh, top favorite uh, international destinations and two or three places that you would like to go in the future. Tokyo is, is pretty up there. It would probably be up there, up there pretty high amongst places. Just, just so much going on. Yes. Uh, cool. Agreed. A lot of culture, obviously great food. Let's see. Uh-huh. Of Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Is is right is right up there for for, for sure. Probably yeah, I only went there once for a very short period of time, but I really liked I really liked Barcelona. Yeah, right. Uh, as as a city, just the combination of uh, a city with really cool architecture and culture, but also has a beach, or you know, right right in the middle of the city. Um, right. 
that that's that's that was kind of a cool place to be. Hong Kong's pretty cool as well. I have to I I, I have to say it's two or three places that you like to. Go oh, to. that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to don't mean to pander to your audience, but I do think I do think Australia any you know in general is pretty high on the list. Um, uh, you know, of, of great places I haven't gone to yet. Just since I've now hit most of the places um, in Asia, I didn't get the chance to do was Mongolia. So I would like to go there at some mm. point in the future. Yeah. And final question, Ben: uh, Who is your greatest inspiration slash hero? Someone like Tom Brady that you know has you know accomplished a lot, but you know is also clearly put in the work to be where he's gotten. And that he's just so driven to be the best at what he does, um, and that you're like, wow, if I could, if I could channel sixty percent of what that guy does, you know, I'd have a great career in, in whatever uh, I'm doing. So, you know, and just the fact that he had to, you know, was not a, a highly touted prospect, and you know, had to work, you know, work his way to you know, where he got. I really respect that. But then at the same time, you know, I, I look at it. And, um, you know, one thing that I've kind of un- underrated over the years is that, uh, even if it wasn't a conscious thing, I think growing up with, uh, with, with two parents who, um, had careers that they liked, I think was, was a really positive thing, um, mm-hmm. for me. And just in the sense that even if I didn't, even if it wasn't a conscious thing, uh, it showed me that, you know, you should go after what you like doing. You know, my, you know, my dad, you know, always, you know, you know, has been passionate about the work he's done, you know, in, in computers and, and, you know, my mom always, you know, liked being a nurse. That was what she wanted to do. Um, mm-hmm. So just having two parents that did jobs that they were passionate about, I think implicitly sent me the message, even if I didn't know what I wanted to do for years, implicitly sent me the message that, Oh, you, you should try to do a career that you enjoy. It, like that's that's that is something to strive for. Um, yeah. So I think that 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 example was valuable to me. Yeah, and just quietly, how does it feel to see Tom Brady in another uniform now, winning? You know, still. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a that's a good question. I I feel like I've taken it really well. Um, yes, and I think most Patriots fans have as well that we, that, you know, he left, he left as a free, he left as a free agent. Um, Mm -hmm. but he, I mean, he, I mean, he gave us, he gave us the best, he gave us 20 great (laughs) years and he accomplished, he accomplished, you know, more than almost any other American athlete has ever accomplished in any team sport. So you can't really be mad at him. Because uh, he gave us he gave us everything that he possibly could, and he accomplished so much that I think we're like he has the right to go wherever he wants. And also, I think secretly, maybe we don't want to admit this, but we realized when he left, like we probably didn't have a team that was good enough at that point where the next couple of years he'd he'd be competing for a Super Bowl with us. Yeah. Uh, so it so seeing him. Now with with Tampa Bay, I I've been rooting for him every every time Tampa Bay comes on, I'm rooting for them. Um, yeah. You know, when they were in the Super Bowl last year, uh, I was rooting for them, especially because they also had Gronkowski. So just I've watched oh, yeah, Tom Brady right. throw to Rob Gronkowski a million times. Yeah. So, <laughs> so watching them connect <laughs> in the Super Bowl on a touchdown, you know, yeah. you, you, know wow. you almost think that you're like, oh, it's we're almost just watching the Patriots again. That's right. But, <laughs> 
That was um, the go-to so, so many times, you know. You would have seen that so many times just in doing that short pass to Gronkowski, right? Yeah, so I, I've been really not that it matters or that he cares, uh, but but I've been <laughs> I've been very happy for him, and I I want to continue to see him do well. So I mean, obviously, I still root for the Patriots; they're my team. But um, if the Bucks are on and they're playing anybody besides the Patriots, I'm usually rooting for them. Yeah, I actually saw it a couple of weeks ago where where he was back in in New England for the first time since he being with Tampa Bay. So. Yeah. Um, I think that was a must must watch whether you you, you like his decision or not, and it was a great game too. And I think they Tampa Bay just won on the bell or something. They they won in yeah. So it, it came down to the very end. The Patriots had a chance to kick a. They were down two, and they had a chance to kick a field goal to win in like the final seconds, and it hit off the post. It hit oh, off the. Right. So yeah, if it had gone in, the Patriots would have won, but it hit off the. Hit off the upright, so they lost. So it was, yeah, it was a really, uh, it was a really close game, really wow. close. Well, Ben, thank you very much for your time. You know, we, I think we could have talked for another hour or two. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I, uh, yeah, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, this was really fun. Uh, hopefully, hopefully your your fans back in Australia enjoy it. And uh, yeah, just follow me, uh, follow me on Instagram. Yeah, no worries. Get get on YouTube and see see his uh, impressions as well, and uh, talking about the Wuhan show as well. And um, and it's always really good to uh, talk to someone that's been to China and experienced it. And you've travelled all over China and you've done you've been very successful. Um, so uh, all the best, and uh, hopefully I can sort of meet up with you in in the US, you know, in the future. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for having me, Craig. I, I had a lot of fun. Hi, I'm Tony Fair, founder of Victorian Grooming Company. Is your beard feeling dry or the skin underneath itchy? Maybe you'd rather soften and tame your beard instead. Our classic collection of beard oils, balms, and soaps will leave your beard looking, feeling, and smelling amazing. And if you prefer shaving, our pre-shave oils and shave soaps will give you a smooth and razor burn free shave. Handmade in Edmonton with natural ingredients, visit victoriangrooming.com.